1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 26, The Battle of Edge Hill. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we examined the military situation which both the King and Parliament would have to deal with, as they marched their armies against each other. We saw how the developments of the military revolution would, through the reading of military treatises and the experience of continental veterans, be applied to the armies of both sides. The formations the infantry and cavalry used, the manner in which they would fight, the arms and armour they were equipped with. All of this was influenced by a wider European world. But as we also saw, England was far less militarised than even the other two kingdoms, much less Sweden or France. And this had ramifications for what forces the Civil War would see, at least early on. When we left off the narrative, the Battle of Powick Bridge, between two small forces of Royalists and Parliamentarians, had ended in a resounding Royalist victory. Prince Rupert of the Rhine, Charles I's nephew, was in command, and his cavalry charge was devastating, and drove off the enemy. That is going to be a phrase we hear a lot. The nearby city of Worcester was evacuated of the royalist convoy which Rupert had come to escort, and they had been safely delivered to the king's camp at Shrewsbury. The king now had two options, two possible ways that this civil war could be quickly won. He could challenge Essex's main army, and hopefully destroy it. That would leave London wide open, and enable him to quickly seize his capital back. The other option was to avoid Essex, to skirt by his army and head straight to London. This would be a coup de grace, depriving the parliamentarians of the financial, political and legitimacy benefits of the city. Even if the parliamentarian leadership escaped the city before it fell, they would struggle to continue the war. This was the path Charles chose – to give Essex the slip, and to reach London before his opponent. But Charles's army was not yet ready to march when Rupert arrived. It would only be in the second week of October 1642 that the king considered his army prepared. He spent the intervening weeks continuing to expand his army and his war chest with varying success. The queen, Henrietta Maria, was still in the Netherlands, seeking aid for her husband, and this aid had arrived over the summer. Well, some of it arrived. More than one ship carrying supplies for the king ended up in parliamentary hands, either through the mutiny of their crews, or just bad weather blowing them into parliamentary ports. More recruits to the Royalist Army continued to make their way to Charles's banner, both levies and veteran mercenaries. News soon reached Charles that across the border, a large number of Welsh levies were being raised for the king. In terms of veterans, the Earl of Forth once again returns to our story. Now you may be wondering, when was this Earl of Forth last in our story? Well, if you don't recognise the title, that's only fair. He was only granted it in March 1642 as a reward for his loyal service to the king in both the bishop's wars. Fourth is none other than Patrick Riven. Riven was a veteran of Gustavus Adolphus's armies. He had twice been appointed governor of Edinburgh Castle in the run-up to the Bishop's Wars. The first time, he wasn't actually allowed into the fortress, and he returned to Charles empty-handed. Charles nevertheless rewarded his loyalty with a lordship, making him Lord Riven of Ettrick. In the Second Bishop's War, Riven held Edinburgh Castle for seven months, before disease and starvation took its toll on its defenders. Riven surrendered the castle and was allowed to sail away. Scurvy had cost him many of his teeth, but his resistance won him another honour from the grateful king. In March 1642, Charles awarded him yet again, making him Earl of Forth. So, It's not hugely surprising that the now Earl of Forth arrived in Shrewsbury to serve as king once again. That he also brought with him other Scottish veterans was the cherry on top. It should be pointed out that these Scots, despite having served as mercenaries in the Thirty Years' War, did not do so here. They had come to fight for their king and for the House of Stuart that they were paid for doing so doesn't make them mercenaries, as Professors Steve Murdoch and Alexia Grosjean go to pains to emphasise. Henrietta Maria urged her husband to show his loyal Scottish subjects every honour, with Forth in particular being singled out. Charles should employ Forth and the other Scots since, quote, "...he is not a person to be displeased. He is capable of doing you service or disservice." Charles once again put his favour and trust into forth, appointed him Marshal General. He would answer to the Lord General, Robert Bertie, Earl of Lindsay, but not for very long, as we'll soon see. As Charles prepared to march, Essex waited in Worcester for the King to make his move. Parliamentary garrisons were stationed in the nearby towns of Kidderminster and Beaudley, since Essex expected the King to march down the Severn Valley. Other garrisons to the east were bolstered to better scout for royalist movement in that direction. The rest of Essex's army was drilled. The poor discipline on show at Powick Bridge could have led to disaster if the skirmish had been more important. His officers were instructed to teach the men the rudiments of war. Far from the two main forces, unrest continued to spread as counties, towns and communities came down on one side or the other. The county of Cornwall, the southwestern tip of the island of Great Britain, was broadly in support of the king, but its neighbouring county, Devon, was split, with multiple trained bands falling under the command of both sides and prepared to face off. In regions firmly under the control of one side or the other, homes and property belonging to the minority faction was targeted for vandalism, theft and arson, and in some cases the owners themselves were attacked. In the north, the Lord of Man, James Stanley, who was now also Earl of Derby, courtesy of his father's death at the end of September, commanded a force for the king. And Stanlock Moor, the great Stanley to his Manx vassals, besieged Manchester. Even then, a large and important trading town, and a parliamentary stronghold to boot, Derby's attempt to take Manchester was defeated within a week. For Parliament, the Yorkshire Castle of Cowood Was captured from the Royalists by Hotham's garrison at Hull, and the realization that Charles would have to march on London spurred the citizens of that city to action. They were, after all, rather short staffed in the garrison department. Most of their trained bands had marched off with Essex, and London had no city walls. But London was huge, and a replacement garrison of 8,000 was quickly recruited. The Earl of Warwick, was instructed by the Parliamentary Committee of Safety to resign from the position of Admiral of the Fleet and instead focus on the defence of London. Everyone knew that it would be the King's target, sooner or later. It turned out to be sooner. By the second week of October, Charles and his advisers considered their force strong enough to march on London and to take the city. Prince Rupert led his cavalry as a vanguard, departing Shrewsbury on the 10th of October. Two days later, the rest of the army followed suit. The King was on the march. Their progress was slow, despite the Royalists having the advantage of knowing the terrain far better than their opponents. The cavalry and dragoons were able to thoroughly scout ahead to prevent the army walking into an ambush. Despite these sensible precautions, both sides were in no danger of unknowingly bumping into the other. Charles knew roughly where Essex's army was at all times. For his part, Essex knew exactly where the king's army was, because he had a spy. And what a brilliantly placed spy it was. Prince Rupert's private secretary, Blake. Blake fed the parliamentarians everything, and so Essex knew fine well where he could find the royalists. Essex was waiting for the right moment to intercept. Charles crossed the River Severn at Bridge North before continuing on to the town of Wolverhampton. Here, the Welsh levies promised weeks ago linked up with the king. This, complete with the joyous reception Charles received from the royalist-leaning Wolfrunians, must have put him in a great mood. That mood was almost certainly ruined when the army reached Birmingham on the 17th, where the Brummies were far less welcoming. They threw insults and a few stones, at the marching army, and even went so far as to capture the carts at the back of the column which had been lagging behind. While Charles fought this battle of public opinion, Prince Rupert's vanguard fought a real battle with Francis Willoughby, a parliamentarian baron who would not remain so forever. The skirmish had one significant consequence. It convinced Essex that now was the time to act. He ordered his army to march out of Worcester and east to the town of Warwick, perhaps expecting that the King would attempt to take the Parliamentarian stronghold. The King did not. He simply bypassed the town with its formidable castle and continued south-east. Banbury was his target, where a parliamentary garrison, one of those reinforced by Essex for just this possibility, stood between him and the road to London. Essex was en route to Warwick when the garrison commander sent him vital information. A royalist supply train had strayed too close to the city, and it had been quickly attacked and seized. Among the other treasures in the convoy was a copy of the Royalist orders, which spelled out exactly what they planned. This, combined with any intelligence received from spies like Blake, prompted Essex to change direction. They marched to the village of Kyneton, where they would spend the night. The Royalist army was camped only a few miles away, scattered in multiple villages and fields, and in the dark of the night, they saw the lights of Essex's army. After scouts confirmed that this was indeed the main parliamentary army, orders were given to stay up all night and prepare for battle in the morning. Hello there,
2: history friend. Zach Twomley here. You may know me from When Diplomacy Fails, podcast, and I am in fact the Agora podcast of the month of September, which is pretty cool. But what you may not know is that I have something very special planned in this month of September. How special? Well, think of a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, or the early to mid-17th century for those of us not as obsessed with the Thirty Years' War as myself. On the 15th of September, I'm releasing... The first of what I am intend to be a very long historical fiction series. The series will be called Matchlock, a 30 years war story. And the first installment will be called Matchlock and the Embassy. What can you expect from this series? Well, the usual blend of war and diplomacy that you would get from When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Because Matthew Locke, or Matchlock as he becomes in the first book, spoiler alert, happens to be an absolute pro with the matchlock musket, but he also happens to be well-educated and quite a fan of talking his way out of situations as well. So yes, I managed to bring Diplomacy into my own fiction series, but I'm really, really excited about it, guys. I haven't been this excited about anything I've done since I started When Diplomacy Fails nearly 10 years ago. I promised myself for a long time that I would release a novel before I was 30 and I managed to squeeze in there just by about a month. So on the 15th of September, if you would like to check out Matchlock and the Embassy and tell all your friends about it too, that would be fantastic. You may hear me guesting on different shows and I hope you don't mind me guesting on this one. That's because I'm doing my best to spread the word about it because I am so, so excited and I hope you'll join me in this journey as well. All right, now I hope you enjoy the actual podcast that you signed up for. Take care, and I'm sure that I'll be seeing you
0: soon. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl.
1: We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich.
0: We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world.
1: We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan.
0: We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets.
1: And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world.
0: Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: On the morning of the 23rd of October, 1642, Prince Rupert's cavalry took up position at what the locals called the Edge Hill. From this perch, he could look out across the Vale of the Red Horse, named after a red clay hill figure of a horse which is sadly no longer there. The cavalry watched as their comrades on foot made their ponderous and slow way from their camps to the foot of the hill. The last would only arrive on the brink of battle. Essex was apparently unaware that the Royalists were forming up for combat. He was on the way to church when he was informed. This put Essex in a bind. His forces were not concentrated for battle. He'd been expecting to be riding to the relief of Banbury, His army was spread out over the surrounding 20 miles. So while some of the Royalist troops would only arrive in the nick of time, some of Essex's army would turn up late or not at all. In the meantime, Essex gave orders for the army to form up on the open ground east of Kyneton, facing the assembling Royalists at the foot of Edge Hill. The entire morning was taken up by these manoeuvres. When the king arrived at the hill at noon, he called a council of war, a cavalry officer, Richard Bulstrode, recorded the meeting. Quote, the council debated whether to march towards London or to march back and fight the enemy, who we saw from the hill, embattling their army in the bottom near Cyneton. To march from them was thought dishonourable, as if we feared them, and they would be sure to follow and give us continual trouble in our march when we should not, perhaps, find so good occasion to fight them. And so it was resolved that we should go down the hill and attack them. At this council, both Rupert and the Earl of Forth argued in favour of the Swedish style of deployment, as we discussed last week. This would give them the edge in making the most of their greater proportion of pikemen to musketeers. Added to this, there were large numbers of English and Scottish veterans of Swedish service in Charles' army, and they were experienced in the Swedish model. But the overall commander, Lord General Robert Bertie, Earl of Lindsay, was likewise a veteran, but one who had fought under Maurice of Nassau. He proposed either the Dutch system, which he was experienced in, or the German system, which was on the cutting edge of military theory, where the pikemen would be concentrated in the centre, while musketeers were on the flanks. This discussion became a furious argument between Lindsay and Forth, each setting the other's teeth on edge and Charles came down on the side of Forth. Outraged that he had been overruled, Lindsay grandly declared, Since His Majesty thought him not fit to perform the office of Commander-in-Chief, he would serve him as a Colonel. To jump ahead, Lindsay followed through with this declaration and fought in the front lines of the battle at the head of a regiment of foot. This would earn him a musket ball in the thigh, and he would be captured by the Parliamentarians, only to die from his wound in captivity. I wonder whether he cursed his pride, as he slowly bled to death in a barn in front of his son, who had surrendered in order to be with his father. His replacement, as Lord General, happily survived the Battle of Edge Hill without any serious injury. And who was his replacement? The Earl of Forth, Patrick Riven. Essex deployed his men about midway between Kyneton and Edge Hill and it was obvious to the Royalists that he had not deployed them to attack. He set up his army in the checkerboard German formation, with artillery in front of his infantry and cavalry on the flanks. Another Council of War was held with the newly appointed Lord General Forth, and it was decided that the Royalist army would descend from Edgehill and take the fight to the Parliamentarians. Now this was a double-edged sword and had obvious drawbacks. High ground is a huge advantage in a battle, but only if the enemy was confident or foolish enough to try and take it from you. Essex was clearly neither of those things, and if there was going to be a battle, then Charles would have to force the issue. If they were defeated, the hill would be an obstacle to an organised retreat, but it was nevertheless decided that the Royalist Army would advance. We have quite a few sources for the Battle of Edge Hill. At least 20 contemporary accounts survive, though they vary in reliability. Some of these appear in larger biographical accounts, if their subjects happen to be there on the day. Since these were written much later than the battle itself, with all the accompanying issues of hazy memory, knowledge of what would come later, and just plain self-aggrandisement, we have to take them with several pinches of salt. Other accounts appear very soon after the battle. Some are letters written during the night, Others are more like after-action reports. Two pamphlets present the semi-official parliamentary and royalist accounts of the battle. As Peter Gaunt puts it in his The English Civil War and Military History, quote, They may contain elements of personal or political bias, and there are undoubtedly places in which the parliamentarian or royalist outlooks of the known or anonymous authors become evident and their stories diverge. Both sides tended to emphasise and to detail phases of the battle in which they had success, and to cover more briefly those aspects in which part of their army performed poorly. Both also stated or implied that they were gaining the upper hand at the end of the day, and that, had Nightfall not intervened, they would have secured clear victory. we keen to stress that they remained on the battlefield the following day, and that it was their opponents who pulled away first, and suggested that they had lost far fewer dead and injured than their opponents. In the main, however, these strictly contemporary and often printed accounts tell a reasonably consistent story of what unfolded on and below Edge Hill on the 23rd of October, quote. The battlefield of Edge Hill was, running north to south, enclosed Brushland, open field, and then enclosed Brushland again, with Edge Hill rising on the east and Kyneton to the west. Essex took up position at the narrowest point of the open field, with his dragoons and cavalry in cover in the brush. When the royalist advance, first the dragoons took up position in northern Brushland on the Royalist right flank, then a vanguard of cavalry followed suit. With no reaction from the parliamentarians, the rest of the army began to move down the hill, with the infantry taking up the diamond formation favoured by the Swedes. This all took time, and it was only by 2pm that the army was in position, conveniently tying with the last laggards arriving from camp. Charles and Essex both rode up and down their lines, greeting their officers, giving speeches, and building the army's morale. Charles' speech went down particularly well, resulting in cheers which echoed down the line. Essex's reply to these cheers was to order the artillery to open fire. The artillery duel which followed marked the start of the Battle of Edge Hill. Parliament's cannon had a much better effect than the Royalists, who kept some artillery on the northern edge of Edge Hill. While this kept them safe and allowed them to fire over the heads of their infantry, they missed more often than they hit. The flanks of the Royalist army advanced to contend with the dragoons and musketeers which Essex had kept in the brush, and were quickly successful in forcing the Parliamentarians back. This marked the beginning of the cavalry action, The right was led once more by Rupert, who led a charge against the Parliamentary Cavalry. As they closed, a single rider emerged from the enemy ranks. His captain, Faithful Fortescue, was not living up to his name. He was going to yield and switch sides to the Royalists. The signal would be him firing his pistol into the ground. Rupert gladly accepted the idea and tried to tell his men but Fortescue had waited too long to announce his intentions, and a third of the would-be turncoats were killed before Rupert could stop his troops. Fortescue survived and joined the Royalists. The betrayal and the earlier defeat of the Dragoons destroyed the morale of the Parliamentary Left. Before Rupert could even engage them, they retreated back towards Kyneton. Rupert gleefully chased the routing soldiers down, and this would have consequences. On the royalist left, the cavalry faced similar success, also driving off their opponents and also chasing them off the field. Charles' lifeguard of horse, his bodyguard and a valuable cavalry reserve got swept up in the moment and chased after Rupert, eager to share their glory of cutting down the fleeing men and raiding the parliamentary baggage. The same scene occurred with the other cavalry reserve, and so despite the Royalists handily defeating the parliamentary cavalry, they had no advantage, since their cavalry had also left the field. If the cavalry had kept their discipline, or Rupert had the sense to bring them back around to take the infantry from behind, Edgehill could have been a crushing defeat for the parliamentarians. In the wake of the cavalry action, the royalist infantry advanced and were met by the parliamentary infantry, and the push of Pike began. The Royalists had almost 10,000 pikemen engaged with 6,000 Parliamentarians, and the Parliamentarians gave a good show of it, refusing to give ground even as the Royalist musketeers poured volley after volley into their ranks. Things were looking grim for Parliament. And then Sir William Balfour, a Scottish officer on the Parliamentarian side, saw an opportunity. He was in charge of their cavalry reserve, and he had not missed the fact that the Royalist Cavalry Reserve had quit the field. Once the Royalist infantry engaged Parliament's lines, and a gap opened up between them, he gave the order to charge. He actually gave two orders to charge. A troop of cuirassiers and a troop of hacapousiers passed through the gap and fell on one Royalist brigade. Balfour himself led two troops of cuirassiers through the gap and charged another. The Royalists were surprised by the appearance of the cavalry, who they thought had all been chased off the field. Worse, the infantry weren't fully drilled in the Swedish counter cavalry formation. One brigade broke and fled, and the cuirassiers mercilessly cut them down, except for some of the commanders who they captured. The chase led them to the Royalist artillery battery on Edge Hill, where the young princes Charles and James had only just left. Back at the main engagement, another Royalist brigade broke and fled after being surrounded by parliamentary cavalry and infantry. The Royalist left was disintegrating, while the right found itself fighting for self-preservation. It was now that some of the Royalist cavalry returned, and they were horrified. They'd run off thinking the battle was won, eager for the first chance for captives and loot. But before they could re-engage the enemy, John Hampden arrived with reinforcements. By now, it was too late in the day. Not only was everyone exhausted, either from battle or from marching to the battle, but night was falling. Both sides disengaged and made camp for the night, the Royalists at the foot of Edge Hill, the Parliamentarians out on the Vale. A miserable night followed, with the grim sounds of wounded and dying men heard all through the wee hours. The next day, the two sides formed up once more, but neither side really wanted to fight. After a day standing in formation, Essex gave the order to withdraw as light began to fade. The Battle of Edgehill was over. In many ways, it's possible to see it as a draw, an inconclusive stalemate where no one gained an overwhelming victory. The Royalist cavalry could have spearheaded that victory, but instead they left their infantry in the lurch, the Parliamentarians, and especially the quick thinking of Balthor, had turned what appeared to be an inevitable defeat into a favourable stalemate. Their main objective was to prevent the King from marching on London, and they had done so. They could have remained in the field and tied up the Royalist army for longer, or attempted to force the issue and bring them to battle once again. Instead, Essex ordered a withdrawal, and left the route to London wide open. He had a plan, and that required Charles to continue his march on the capital. If the Battle of Edge Hill was a tactical stalemate, then Essex's withdrawal granted Charles a strategic victory. It remained to be seen whether Essex had also gifted the king victory in the entire war. Thank you to my House of Lords, which has been joined by Sandra, Duchess of Worcester, the Marquess of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, Megan Mitchell and Carrie Nation, who have both received baronies. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive ad-free versions of this and every other episode, go to patreon.com slash If you haven't already told a friend about the podcast, please consider doing so. It's the single best way to help a podcast grow. I also appreciate every review left on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and all the rest. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and to my entire House of Lords for their support, and as always, to you for listening.